I'm Dale Mason, publisher of Answers Magazine, and this is Creation Answers, a podcast of Answers in Genesis, featuring highlights from the award-winning Answers Magazine. In this episode, we'll look at the moral revolution. It's definitely caught Christians by surprise. We'll look at two topics in particular, transgender and homosexuality. They're hard to talk about, but we need to. The LGBTQ movement is pushing them everywhere. Understand that these articles were not written for young children. They're for mature Christian adults and teens living life in this broken world. The first article gives a practical biblical perspective on transgender. It points the way out of the darkness. What should believers do when we disagree with our neighbors about the very nature of humanity? We're used to disagreement. For example, hailing from Maine, I was raised from the cradle to cheer for the Boston Red Sox. As I ventured beyond New England, I discovered a strange species of humanity, known as Yankees fans. I did my best to get along with them, but I freely admit that I am a work in progress on this matter. We all have these sorts of friendly disagreements over teams, cuisine, vacation spots, Oxford commas, city ordinances, and on the list goes. What do we do as believers, however, when we disagree with our neighbors about not just baseball or even a local government policy, but the very nature of humanity? This is no trivial question. In 2019, this is where we find ourselves. No issue has more exposed our fundamental divide than that of transgenderism. The view that some people are born in the wrong body, essentially, and so must take action to bring out their true gender identity. Said differently, those who advocate the acceptance of transgender humanity believe that a girl can be trapped in a boy's body, and vice versa, and thus should take steps to change their body so that it accurately reflects who they truly are. This issue sneaked up on the church. We were accustomed to debates over creation and evolution, yes. We didn't see the debate over Genesis chapters 1 through 3, in particular, would jump from the Earth's age to human identity. Today, believers who believe in creation ex nihilo find themselves defending not only the historicity of creation, but the historicity of humanity. The early chapters of Genesis, after all, teach us how the Earth came to be, and also how mankind came to be. In an age like this, what should Christians do? More to the point, as debates over the nature of humanity rage, what should Christians say? Here are three basic points to guide believers who wish to speak the truth about the creative order and human design in a confused society and a rebellious age. First, we need to know what the Bible teaches about the sexes. The first priority of God's people should not be them, it should be us. By this I mean that we need to study Genesis chapters 1 through 3 afresh. We need to go deep in the wise plan of God and see with renewed interest the intention of God for the human race. The Lord made the man and the woman in his image. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. You cannot pluck out a certain quality of humanity and identify that as the core characteristic of the image of God. The man and the woman are the image in their totality, including their soul, rationality, relationality, and initial righteousness. See Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7. The man and the woman are thus fully equal in terms of worth and dignity before God, but they do not have the same identity. 
The man is formed first and is made to work and watch over the garden. Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. While the woman is made from the man and named by him. Genesis chapter 2 verses 21 through 23. Here in the Genesis account, the Lord is signaling what Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 through 33 will unfold in full detail. Adam is the head of his wife, Eve. He is called to love and lead her, and she is called to follow and submit to him. The marriage relationship we learn in Paul's teaching is nothing less than a picture of the gospel love between Christ and his blood-bought church. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. All this means that manhood and womanhood are divinely created realities. The sexes are not dreamed up by repressive authoritarians who wanted to institutionalize their domination of the weak. It is God who made manhood and God who made womanhood. In Genesis chapter 2, the zoomed-in picture of the sixth day, it is God who forms the man from the earth's dust and God who forms the woman from the man's rib. Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 and 21 through 22. You could not get a more obvious statement from the Lord about the sexes. He made them. He sculpted them. Works of beauty, just as he wanted them to be. He not only created them a man and a woman, but he gave them specific roles and duties within the home. The man would need to provide and work and protect. The woman was designed with the capacity to nurture and bear life an awe-inspiring ability, if there ever was one. From this constitution, she sees the need not merely to keep a baby or child alive, but to love her home and children in a set-aside way. See Titus chapter 2, verse 5. All this God-glorifying work takes place in the context of marriage. It is not an art class project where we can put together the pieces however we see fit, but a divine institution grounded in the master's creative design. All this speaks not merely to creation, but created order. There is a structure and form and purpose behind the sexes. The first man and first woman were not evolved from gases. They were designed to honor God according to their distinctive body and constitution. Your body, we conclude, is not raw material that you manipulate to fit your perceived identity, whatever that may be. Your body's form, either manly or womanly, is a message from God, telling you a key part of who you are and who you are to be by His grace. Second, we need to make clear our desire for all people to flourish. The preceding ideal, where God ennobles our gender differences for His eternal glorious purposes, may sound good to you and me. I certainly hope it does. But we're not in the days of Genesis chapter 2, are we? We are in a post-Genesis chapter 3 world, a world where the real historical sin of Adam has tainted and damned us all. Why would anyone in this world be interested in God's ideal? Answer, we need to make clear that this ideal is designed for all people, even today, to flourish. I'm not saying this will be easy, but we need both eyes open as we understand the people we're talking to. We are born sinners, without any coaching or instruction. The fall had all kinds of effects, but one of the chief effects is that people sin without fear and claim a sinful and unbiblical identity for themselves. This is true across the globe, yes, but the West seems to have entered a Romans chapter 1 environment, where pagan thought has displaced even a biblical or even distantly traditional concept of humanity.
What do I mean here? I mean that people today do not see themselves as made by God. They believe that they are uncreated, unbound to the Lord, and unfettered by any moral decree. Without the Bible as their absolute authority, they may do as they wish. They use their body as they like. They worship the very world they live in, not the one who made it. In their minds, they may freely enter into homosexual and polysexual engagements without respect to any theological or ethical system, and they openly and proudly reject the wisdom of God seen in both nature and Scripture. Increasingly, our neighbor is not even vaguely religious in the Christian sense. The people around us live, act, think, and desire like pagans. So what do we do? Do we angrily detach from our society? Do we hate people who hate God? Do we let fear of hostility and attack take hold of us? All of these responses may prove natural to our flesh, but these are not godly responses. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a higher call, a supernatural one, supranaturam, literally above nature. We are called to love those who reject God's truth and God's design. We want them to flourish. This does not mean affirming them in their sin, a tricky matter to be sure, and more on that below. It does mean that we pray for them, that we seek to win them rather than shun them, and that we show kindness to them as we are able. Our witness to people who are living in rebellion against God, whether by embracing a new gender identity or otherwise, is grounded in theological truth. We know who they are. They are image bearers made by God for His glory. They are human. They will taste true freedom only when they obey God by divine grace. And they will know true happiness only when they submit to divine rule. We thus seek to tell our neighbors the truth, making clear that we want them to flourish. But flourishing does not mean adopting a false view of the human identity. Flourishing does not come when people affirm us in our fallenness. Flourishing means leaving sin behind and living according to God's design. 3. We need to contend in public for biblical truth. As we communicate these truths and live in this grace-filled way, people may respond by telling us that they have a right to form their own identity. It is wrong, they may say, for anyone to shape anyone else's understanding of themselves. This sort of response may also come with a demand that we use their preferred pronouns and affirm their chosen lifestyle. In addition to what I've already laid out above, what should we do in these sticky circumstances? Let me list four shaping principles. One, we need to make clear that society depends upon certain hard and fast realities. It may sound great to choose your own gender, for example, but what does this choosing mean, say, for public restrooms? Are we going to have five different restroom types for five different genders? Or 50 for 50? or a thousand for a thousand? This line of reasoning is logistically impossible to execute. Two, we need to show how biology is actually quite clear on these matters. Dr. Georgia Purdom has laid out the biological issues elsewhere in this issue. Yes, a tiny fraction of the populace is born intersex, having ambiguous, or both, male and female genitalia. But the vast majority of people are either male or female. These distinctive sexual realities shape our lives. As just one measurable distinction, men have on average 1,000% more testosterone than women. 
3. We must consider the natural desire to be affirmed, which is truly the quest of our age. Many transgender individuals seek the public acceptance of their lifestyle, but in a way that goes beyond merely wanting inclusion. All too often, our culture's conception of affirming one another means agreeing with one another. Disagreement is seen as hostile and evil in 2019. So Christians need to communicate to unsaved neighbors that we can disagree without hatred. In truth, everyone disagrees on something. The non-Christian, who says we are non-affirming, disagrees with us after all. In place of unbounded affirmation and agreement, it's better to advocate for mutual respect when disagreements exist. To extend the point, Christians like the bakery-owning Kleins in Oregon, the florist Baronel Stutzman in Washington, and the wedding cake designer Jack Phillips in Colorado, have all suffered for their biblical ethics in recent days. They have all been denounced and hated for their lack of love. The irony is often lost on folks today, who fail to see that they are hateful in the name of love. When this happens, as it will, we should point out the inconsistency. 4. We need to use discretion and wisdom regarding pronouns and identity markers. We know biblically that figures like Esther and Daniel not only had to work and live in pagan environments, but had to take on false names connected to idolatry. People around us today voluntarily and happily do what was forced upon faithful men and women in Scripture. On the other hand, we must never approve of sin while we engage with unbelievers, including those embracing a transgender identity. We should explicitly call them out of a life of lostness, graciously directing them to leave behind cross-dressing, false gender identity, and other trappings of a transgender lifestyle. Are there situations at work when we may be required to refer to a person by a pronoun that does not match their birth sex? There likely will be. Will teachers face a choice between getting fired or using the preferred pronoun of a supposedly transgender child? Yes, I predict some will. Is there a one-size-fits-all answer to these and other related predicaments? We must never compromise the gospel and biblical truth in our witness, no. But we also may face instances where we feel compelled to use the new name of transgender individuals. Whatever we decide to do, we should never affirm their lifestyle and broader identity. Conceding to their new name is not our preference. But when you live in Babylon, as we increasingly do, you must recognize that there are some gray areas that stretch us and challenge us. In those circumstances, we should not shrug our shoulders, as if the wisdom of God is of no account. We should, however, strive like Daniel and his friends to live faithfully in a pagan environment that fundamentally contrives to compromise our witness. And when necessary, like Daniel's friends, we should stand firm when commanded to bow before an idol. Truth and the Christian Witness The debate over gender and gender identity waxes hot in our time. If we once thought it was tough to eat Thanksgiving dinner with fans of our rival sports teams, it is much more difficult when we graciously decline to affirm a family member's new gender identity. We may well face hatred for this decision, even though it is motivated by love. Christians may wonder if they have in fact lost their ability to witness by speaking and standing for truth, however winsome we try to be. 
This is what we must remember in days ahead. Speaking and living according to the truth isn't part of Christian witness. Speaking and living according to the truth is Christian witness. If God's Word and its holy doctrines are not front and center in our evangelism and engagement, then we're just offering a spiritualized version of can-do self-help to the world. We have so much to offer. We have Christ and His Gospel. This transforming truth, in the final analysis, is why Christians participate in our turbulent cultural debate over gender. We bring not only the truth of God's order and God's good design, but the transformative power of God's saving message. Faced with a lost, confused, and rebellious world, God's children have much that we can and should say. But above every other word we could speak, we extend hope to the sinner, a satisfying and permanent resolution to the greatest disagreement that divides us all. That article, Cutting Through the Chaos, was written by Owen Strayan. He's a professor of Christian theology and author of two books on God's design for the sexes. If you like the Creation Answers podcast, you'll love Answers Magazine. Subscribe for a full year of the print edition, and you'll automatically get access to the audio and digital versions of every issue as well. Right now, you can even save an extra 10%. Just enter the exclusive discount code PODCAST10 at AnswersMagazine.com. That's PODCAST10 at AnswersMagazine.com. The previous article showed how understanding the creation account helps us understand the transgender issue. The next article is the personal testimony of Emily Tomes. It shows how understanding Adam's fall helps us see why people struggle with homosexuality. Shouldn't we value the sincere feelings of others rather than condemn them? I can remember my earliest thoughts and desires. Like most kids, I coveted any new toy my brother received and I got angry when he beat me at Mario Kart. I also remember having a very real crush on my first best friend. They were all just feelings, right? What could be wrong with them? We were 10 years old, and I knew that I felt differently about my friend than she did about me. I didn't mind too much, though. I was content spending time with her and keeping my thoughts to myself. I had occasional fears about what I was feeling, but I pushed them aside. Barely a preteen, I'd already adopted the prevailing view that my feelings defined who I was. So they must be okay. Eventually, I would fully embrace the LGBTQ lifestyle. The biggest argument that the world poses for why homosexuality cannot be wrong, and the one that comforted my heart for so long, is that these feelings are real and not chosen. Most people in the LGBTQ community can look back on their lives and honestly say they've felt attraction for people of the same gender as long as they can remember. If their feelings are sincere and have been present their entire life, shouldn't they be valued rather than condemned? As Christians, we are often afraid to deal with this topic because we don't want to sound harsh and uncompassionate. Yet, God's Word is sufficient for all things, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. The same old answers that satisfied people's deepest longings 2,000 years ago still apply today. God's Word provides the fundamental historical fact that puts our feelings in perspective, the fall of Adam and Eve. It is the key to finding wholeness and eternal joy. If it feels right, it must be good. 
By the time I turned 15, I had accepted my feelings as my true self and came out publicly as a lesbian. For years, I sported short hair, wore men's clothing, lived in openly gay relationships, and even dabbled in drugs. My life was all about my wants and desires. Like so many others in our day, I believed myself to be a pretty good person, and I trusted my internal compass. I worked full-time, cared about my friends and family, and paid my bills. Because I, a good person, had same-sex feelings, they must be good and right, too. Lady Gaga's song, Born This Way, promotes this view in a way that's especially blatant. I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. This belief is everywhere. Before God saved me, I didn't understand the basic truth of our inherent sinfulness. Although I professed faith, I never actually read my Bible. If I had, I would have known that we're born on the wrong path, and that path leads to destruction. We need to find the narrow way that leads to life, as Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14. We must be born again. I didn't understand that our feelings aren't supposed to be our guides. Instead, they show us that we're in need of a new heart and forgiveness. Our feelings have been innately anti-God since Adam's fall. That includes desires of any kind, polygamy, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, which violate the Creator's original good design for one man and one woman joined in holy marriage. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 27. The belief that we're all mostly good people isn't new. It's actually an old heresy called Pelagianism, which denies that Adam's original sin tainted humanity's basic nature, including our feelings and desires. But nobody ever explained this to me. Christians who know God's word should love people too much to keep silent on this issue. If the Bible is true, we must speak up, because God commands us to, and because people need to hear the truth about the effects of the fall and the gospel's promise to restore what's broken. Our nature in light of the Creator. My eventual change of heart began with a Bible study organized by my co-workers. My aunt was in the group and encouraged me to go. So I went, though I was ready to bolt at the first mention of lifestyle. Instead, I began to hear about the bigness of our Creator. Seeing Him in His fullness helped me to recognize my smallness and question my identity. I realized that I couldn't pick and choose the parts of the Bible that suited me and say that I was following Jesus Christ. When God created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, they were holy and happy, and all was right with the world. That drastically changed when Satan tempted Eve and the pair decided to sin against their Maker. When they did this, sin and death spread into the whole world, affecting all of creation, including me. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and chapter 8, verse 22. I can relate to Adam and Eve hiding in the Garden of Eden. We too have turned from God in our shame and rebellion. This sinful nature, which everyone has inherited, is inescapable and powerful. Most important to understand, it's not God's doing, it's man's. From the womb, each of us is inclined toward sin and away from righteousness. Psalm 51, verse 5. This is why children don't have to learn how to lie or how to be selfish. These things come naturally. This brokenness is the effect of our sin nature, and every single one of us can relate to it if we're honest. Our desires take many different forms, but we're all broken. We've lost our identity in our Creator, Jesus Christ. People who experience same-sex attraction need to understand the same truths as everyone else. The Creator who made all things has the right to set the rules. 
The fault explains why we have such strong feelings that violate these rules, still hiding from our Creator. An earnest and compassionate young woman asked me recently, why can't you just leave people alone to love who they want to love? I get that question a lot, and think about it often. In many ways, it's almost as if we've all joined Adam and Eve back in the garden, immediately after the fall. Men and women want to be like God, making their own choices for right and wrong. But we fail and then desperately try to cover ourselves with fig leaves, creating a fragile web of excuses and smoke screens that really can't cover anything. Beyond that, we see men and women continue to fall back on Adam's old excuse, blaming God for their sin. We are frequently told, if God wanted me to be different, he would have made me different. He did make Adam and Eve different. Their bodies and feelings were pure. Then we sinned, and here we are, fallen and in need of healing and mercy. When Adam blamed God for his sin, he hoped to excuse and justify himself. The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. It's the same old story all over again. We search high and low to blame anyone but ourselves, even blaming God if it suits us. But God is not responsible for Adam's choice to sin any more than God is responsible for your sin or mine. We enjoy our natural bent for sin, Romans chapter 1, verse 32, but He graciously extends mercy to us so that we can turn from it and cling to Christ instead. Our old nature still at war. God has given us a remedy for our misdirected affections. When we believe and trust in Jesus as Lord, we are given a new heart that can finally love God and acknowledge that what He says is truly good. Jesus removes our heart of stone and replaces it with one that is careful to obey Him out of love. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. The Bible has to be our guide as we navigate hard questions, and it is more than able to tackle any of them. If we understand what God says about our flesh, and the seriousness of sin, for example, we'll not be surprised that we still struggle to do what's right even after we're born again. I've heard many atheists and even professing Christians claim that if I or anyone else still battles with same-sex attraction, then we've not been saved and changed by God. The Bible debunks that argument plainly. The Apostle Paul exhorts Christians to continue to wage war against our sinful desires, because our sinful nature doesn't lie down and die when we're saved. Instead, our flesh, which Paul calls the old self, continually pulls us toward sin. God has given us His Spirit and abundant grace to live victorious lives. This is a great hope and encouragement to all Christians, and it comes not from our feelings, but from the Word of God, the Bible. The Lord promises in every case to provide a way of escape from temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And He will complete the work He began in us. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. But the Bible warns us to prepare for an ongoing battle and not expect an effortless rescue. It's easy to see how the world without the Scriptures could get so much wrong. If we rely on our feelings to guide us, our answers will look much different than if we start with the Bible. God has given us the answer in His Word. And as a former member of the LGBTQ community, I can assure you that it is the most loving and compassionate answer we could possibly hope to share. That article, Falling for Your Feelings, was written by Emily Tomes. She's a stay-at-home mom and popular blogger who shares her amazing personal testimony 
of God's deliverance. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed these articles, there are hundreds more at our website, AnswersMagazine.com. The links to today's articles are listed in our show notes, and I encourage you to subscribe to receive the magazine in your mailbox every other month. You will love that you're better able to share and defend your faith. I'm Dale Mason, publisher at Answers Magazine, and for the entire team, God bless. Two-thirds of young people are leaving the church by college age, and biblical illiteracy is rising. People simply don't know what the Bible teaches or how to defend what they believe. What can we do to raise up a generation of young people who love God's Word and know how to answer today's skeptical questions? Well, to help parents, pastors, and other Christian leaders with this vital task, we developed Answers Bible Curriculum a Sunday school curriculum that takes you on a chronological tour of the whole Bible over four years. 200 lessons address the real-life issues of Christians today, and you'll get a thorough understanding of the authority of Scripture and its primary teachings. And it's synchronized from preschool to adult, so the whole family is learning the same thing at varying levels. I encourage you to order Answers Bible Curriculum for your church, Christian or homeschool. Learn more at AnswersBibleCurriculum.com.